0: Or at whatwasthatlike.com.
1: This podcast contains adult themes and language and may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
3: and welcome to Fruit Loops. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Uh, We're gonna do a switching up the style a bit. Uh, So how are you doing, Beth? How you doing?
1: I'm doing really good. I had a good Christmas. Uh, My daughter, my son-in-law, and my grandson and Spent quite a bit of time in uh, North Dakota uh, with them. We didn't go anywhere, do anything because, you know, COVID. Right. uh, We played games, did puzzles. I got to play with my grandson. He loves cars. Awesome. So we played cars a lot.
3: Oh, that's so (laughs) sweet. (laughs) Oh, so you're,
1: like, on the floor, like, vroom,
3: vroom, Vroom. Oh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, he he plays with his cars like they're people. Oh. Oh, that's so yeah.
3: Oh, that but so it's sweet. really
1: cute yeah uh, yeah uh that rona
3: is not a bitch to be played with there's the rona no. the rona remix has yeah. dropped this week. yeah
1: and,
3: and we're,
1: uh, we're, arizona is uh worst in the world shut up right now are you serious yeah. oh yes
3: God. wow lucky <laughs> us huh uh, yeah oh, yo, we're winning. winning yeah you're gonna get so sick of winning he said it, he said it yeah it's <laughs> and true. guess what i am
1: <laughs> whoa <laughs> so how are you doing um good 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 yeah the uh
3: holidays were um not ideal because old whitey oh. had uh next oh surgery. right um, how's she doing oh he's good it, man this was wild so he's like you know home from the hospital like oh my neck i can't you know he like moved out of the bedroom and sleeping in the recliner in the living room and stuff and like right uh we go to his follow-up appointment and uh he's wearing the neck brace and stuff and the the surgeon's like oh yeah dude you can take that off uh yeah <laughs> uh, you could keep do- you could do whatever whatever you want just uh if it hurts don't do it and i right so he's like driving and like almost <laughs> like almost not not back to normal per se like he's still in a lot of pain but like it wasn't as uh intense as i i he made imagined it, it. To be. yeah yeah um and also yeah i mean uh i we did we still got santa believers in this house so uh we, we that that got taken care of everybody got their presents. um we uh with the family played um black card, uh black card revoked, I think it's called. And I've heard
1: that heard of that before.
3: It yeah. It was so fun to play. <laughs> and uh one of my siblings has a white partner. And so my white partner and his white partner and it was just like like some of the some like these white people in our lives really surprised me with their knowledge <laughs> of black culture. It was awesome. Uh, and it was just fun. The funniest part of the whole game was, we were talking about like being ashy, right? And and that's a, like a, a terrible nightmare for a black person is to be caught out in public <laughs> with like ashy knees, ashy elbows or ashy ankles right and, uh, my mom was like she said she was at the salon the hair salon it's kind of like you know the barbershop but just for black ladies and they dress right. up and stuff and somebody said that somebody uh was walking around like they had knelt in flower and I thought that
1: <laughs> was so funny <laughs> we were car-
3: I was like, oh, mom for the win. She gets all the black cars. That was good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, uh, we are on a little break, obviously. So t- why don't we, uh, what, what is this episode about today? What What's going on, Beth?
1: Well, today we have a special episode for you guys uh, from our friend Lawrence Hunter, who has a podcast called Captain Hunter's Podcast. Mm. And uh, Captain Hunter is a person of color and a former police officer. And his goal is to bridge the gap between police and communities that they serve. Mm. He often has tough conversations about policing and race that are really fascinating to listen to and uh, illuminating. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this particular episode is a Facebook Live that he did with Daryl Davis, who's a musician, an author and an activist. And through his activism work, Daryl Davis has actually convinced members of the KKK to turn Turn in their robes and give up their lives of hate. It's it's a fascinating. This dude is fascinating. I've seen I've yeah. seen him around,
3: and it is just remarkable that Captain Hunter got yeah. his hands on amazing on, be able to interview him. So this is this is a treat for sure.
1: It is, and uh, Captain Hunter and Daryl Davis have a great conversation, and they make suggestions for ways our country can heal and move forward.
3: Yes. All right. Well, on with the show. Here we go, and enjoy.
2: And it's going to take people a few moments to. Uh... To jump on, right. Uh, but uh, while they do, uh, I really appreciate your once again coming on. It's been interesting what we we're talking about before the 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 um the fact that people just can't seem to get over this Confederate statue thing. Now I've read up about it. I'd like to know a little bit more of your thoughts about it. You know, what is this obsession with it? I mean, I'm sure that in your line of work, you've had to have conversations about that.
0: Sure, you know, people want to claim his heritage. Uh, their ancestry fought in these in the Confederate uh war. You know, you know, we don't condone slavery, but it's our heritage, it's our ancestry, blah, blah, blah. Uh, some of them do condone condone slavery. But Absolutely. what they Yeah. But you know what? The South has a lot to be proud of, a whole lot to be proud of. But slavery was not one of them. It was not one of those things. And and the majority of these statues were put up in the 1920s, the 50s, and the 60s as a slap in the face. To integration when integration was established and desegregation. These people are still fighting the civil war. The civil war may have ended officially, but unofficially it never ended. It simply mutated. So we can no longer own you and keep you in chains and make you work for you know for, for free. But we're not going to let you drink from our water fountain. You can't use our restrooms. You got to sit in the back of the bus. Uh, if we allow you into our restaurant at all, you can't sit down. But you got to go through the back door and get your food and go back out. You know that was a mutation of slavery because we once owned you. You were our property. You, you know you weren't human beings. So then you know we were we were segregated. And then when laws were passed to desegregate, uh, it didn't really end. it, it mutated again uh where okay so now we gotta we have to we have to uh, let you in but uh, but we're not gonna let you sit with us you're gonna have your own seating section like at the at the bus station there's a colored waiting room and that you know in the movie theater you gotta sit in the peanut gallery and all that kind of stuff uh when that when that ended it mutated again okay so now we gotta hire you to work in our in our companies but you're not gonna have a desk job you're gonna you know mop the floors and clean the restroom so, you know, it keeps mutating each time. Uh, and this is a result of, uh, of the after, aftermath and after effects of slavery. You don't find that kind of thing happening in other countries where they did not own human beings. I have been to 57 different countries on six continents, starting at the age of three. And I'm 62 years old right now. I've lived in Africa for 10 years. I lived in Europe. I've, I've been to Asia, I've been to Australia, I've been to South America. You know, I've seen a lot of people, ethnicities, cultures, religions. And I can tell you, um, no matter how far I've gone from this country to the other side of the earth and how many different people I've seen, how many different cultures I've been exposed to, I can tell you one thing, when I got back, I realized at the end of the day, everybody I met was, was a human being. And they all want the same four things we want. We want to be respected. We want to be loved. Um, we want to be heard. And we want the same things for our family as they want for their family. And if we can understand that about one another, there wouldn't be so many problems out here.
2: I often think that I'm being trolled when people tell me that it's uh, you know it's a symbol of heritage and my I don't know if I really believe that they believe that we talk about the Confederate statues. I don't know if I believe that they believe that. I think that they absolutely know that this is a symbol of hatred, a symbol of white supremacy, and we wish that we would have won and we're going to stick it up in people's faces. Uh, am I wrong in that? <laughs> um, some people don't realize it. Some people
0: definitely, yes, that, that is their attitude. And there are others who are just, for lack of a better word, ignorant. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I mean, in a sense that they are unaware and unlearned of their history. And uh, anybody who really knows history and knows the Confederacy knows that that particular flag that we're talking about is not the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag is a different flag of the Confederacy. That particular flag was used during the, during the Confederacy, but it was the battle flag. It was used in the battle of the Civil War when the Confederacy fought against the Union. And that war was fought to preserve slavery on the side of the Confederacy oh, no, 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 you know, it wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. Yeah, the state's right to own slaves. <laughs> that's what it was. Right. You know, don't give me the states' rights stuff. Um, right, 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 right. You know, and then when you know, keep saying, you know, well, it's about heritage, it's not hate, it's heritage. Okay, well, for some people, you know, that's how, how they may think. But here's what I what I propose to them, and I've done this before. Um, if you really, really believe, that stands for heritage, and, and, and you tell me you don't want anything to do with the Ku Klux Klan, they're a hate organization, that's not you, you abhor them, etc. cetera, all you have to do is Google KKK rally, Klan rally. You'll see all kinds of robes and hoods carrying Confederate flags. All right? I say, I, I go to a lot of Klan rallies. I say, come go to a Klan rally with me. And when you see one of those people that you abhor carrying your flag, you tell them that's not what it's about to give you back your flag. And if you do that, whether they give it back to you or not, I will come over your house and I will take your Confederate flag and I will hoist it up your pole for you and fly it for you. I have yet to have any takers.
2: Uh, I'm sure, and that's exactly my point: is that I don't know if they really subconsciously believe that. I don't know why they're saying it; what their motivation is. Well, you I know, ch- change
0: is something that that you know that we all have difficulty dealing with. You know. And I I will I'll use an example, and this is not a um a a put down uh on, on women because men men have, have have their own issues as well. But you know, we've seen plenty of of women who have been uh battered and beaten by by their boyfriends or their husbands, and and they stay around. You know, they, they don't leave and they're told, you know, one day he's gonna kill you. You know, just get out, get out. And they stick around because They don't want that change. They'd rather stay with something with which they're familiar than to go out and try to break in something new. All right. And then what happens? Finally, the guy beats them within inches of their life and they finally leave. They finally leave and they end up with somebody else. And what kind of relationship is that? The same one that they knew back home. Another abuser. Because they don't like change. It's a psychological thing. Uh, when I when I uh, graduated high school, before going to college, I worked for a couple months uh, at a uh, moving company. And, uh, you know, we move people from Washington, D.C., down to Florida, or from Washington, D.C., you know, half an hour away in, into the state of Maryland or northern Virginia or whatever. Um, and these are people who are all excited about their move. You know, they're, they're getting a new house, et cetera. Um, and then as soon as we come in and start moving the couch, the table, they begin freaking out. It's that change, you know, that people are, are not accustomed to, and even though they, you know, they want things to get better, uh, they feel very un- unstable when you, when you pull up their roots, and, and and that's that's just a psychological thing that we have
2: to address with with human beings. I mean, and we're the same way. In your in your line, what? Obviously, we're we're speaking with uh, Daryl Davis. Uh, you have taken over 200 Klan hoods from people. Is that the way you express it? Gotten 200 people out of the I, Klan? I,
0: I, yeah, I have, um, well, people, over 200 white supremacists have okay. have renounced that ideology. Some of them, okay. a lot of them Klan members, uh, some of them neo-Nazis, some of them alt-right type people, some of them just individual uh, white supremacists. I have probably 50-some uh, robes and hoods, but uh, just, just over 200 people.
2: Okay, okay. Very nice. So thank you very much for your work. I mean, I know it's got to be daunting. Are people still reaching out to you to try to to get out of this life? or? or Absolutely. What? People, you know, will email me and say, hey, you know, I
0: heard you on such and such a podcast or I saw you on, on some interview with, on the news, you know, and, you know, you made me think, um, you know, I, I want to leave you. Is there any chance we can have a conversation? I even had somebody from Georgia. I did not even know. Mail me their clan robe. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know this person, but the the person you know found my email, my website, or whatever, and and said, you know, hey, you know, I got this thing. I want, you know, I'm done. I want to want to get out. You know, would you like it? Because, you know, they know I collect them. I'm going to open a museum at some point, point. and uh, right now I'm going to loan my, my a lot of my uh, belongings to the Orlando Holocaust uh, Museum and Center, and they're going to put on an exhibition in the fall, and then it will tour the country and come back to me, and by the I have my five hundred one c three, so hopefully. At some point, I'll be able to, to afford a building, you know, that I can house my stuff in.
2: So in your line of work and, and dealing with people like that, uh, what has been their motivation? Have you I know, We want to play amateur psychologist right now. Sure. What, what's their motivation for joining these organizations?
0: Well, they're different motivations. Um, it depends. It could be, you know, my, my, uh, my grandfather was in the Klan and my father was in the Klan. So I'm in the Klan and my kids are going to be in the Klan. So a family tradition passed down kind of thing. Other people, they might join for um, a socioeconomic reason. Uh, For example, let's say you have a town that's big on coal mining. Um, A lot of coal miners are white people. And usually when you get into that field, it's a family thing. You know, they've been doing it for generations. Uh, You know, grandfather, father, son, you know, on down the line, right out of high school, right into the coal mines. And that's all they know, digging coal, right? You give them a broom, ask them to sweep the floor. They don't know how to do that. That You know, digging coal is their thing. And they're good at it. So the company that employs them, that's been employing them, um, comes to the decision, you know what? We could could, uh, save a lot of money. Let's lay off these workers and hire some of those uh, uh, people who just came into the country. You know, some of these immigrants, whether they're legal or illegal, doesn't matter. Just hire them because we can pay them that much money. You know, we're paying these people this much money. So, you know, we can save all this money and just lay them off. Now, these white workers who are working in the coal mines, I'm just using the coal mines as just an example. These are not racist people. They're happy. They, they have a job. They're paying their bills. They can pay their mortgage. They can put food on their family's table, put clothes on their kids' backs, etc. You know, when somebody is happy, they don't hate other people. You know, they're happy for their families. They're happy for you. So um, these people get laid off. And now they are out of work. They can't get any other kind of job. They're not trained for any other kind of job. That's all they know is digging the coal. So um, they got some people from who, who just came into the country or whatever working these jobs you know, for pennies on the dollar. And um, the Klan knows that. The Klan will come to one of those towns and hold a rally and say, you know, the Blacks have the NAACP. The Jews have the ADL. Nobody stands up for the white man but the Ku Klux Klan. You know, your job's not gone, but you're gone. You know, some such and such and such and such has your job. You know, you come join us, we'll get your job back. You can't even put food on your on your family's table. You can't put clothes on your kids back uh, because because you lost your job to one of those people. You know, come join us. And these are, I said, these people who are not racist. They, you know, they would have no reason to join the Klan, but they think, you know what? The bank's knocking on my door. They want their their mortgage money. They want their rent money, and um, I don't have it. What do I have to lose? Give me an application. And they, you know, because they're looking to believe in something, and so they join that way. Or if you move into a town that is a a strong type of uh, you know racist town, a, cl- a clan town, just like a gang. You 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 move into a section of the city that's that's run by the gang. You make up your mind. You know either you join or you. Or you get out. Uh, so, you know, if you want to do business in that town, uh, you want to join the local chamber of commerce. You want to join the local country club. You want to join the local Ku Klux Klan.
2: It's just how the town works, you know, the network. I want to ask you about the gang life. Do you do a lot of people come from broken homes as in gangs, right? Do people are pre- preying on people who are vulnerable?
0: Uh, that That is one of the re, uh, uh, recruitment tactics. Sure. A lot of them come from broken homes or dysfunctional families, Maybe alcoholism, things like that. But there are also those who 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 don't have any uh, dysfunction at home. You know, they read the wrong book. You know, went down the wrong path or with the wrong friends and things like that. Um, you know, not not everybody who uh, who joins comes from a from a racist background. You know, but, uh, but a lot of them do, and and those people are vulnerable because they've never been nurtured. they never felt like they belong to anything. And then when when the Klan or the Nazis or whoever uh, sees that that, that vulnerability, Yes, yeah, sure, they prey upon it. And then that becomes their family, more so than their biological family. And, uh, you know, they do a ritual to get in and they do a blood oath and all that kind of stuff. So now, you know, they're brothers. They're, you know, they're bound together. And when, you know, if they leave uh, after, you know, whatever time they retire from it and go away quietly, that's fine. But if you leave and you renounce it, then you might have some ramifications
2: because, you know, you you, you betrayed. You're, you're a race trader now. Mm-hmm. You betrayed your family. Do you think the people at the top of these organizations, right? I'm not talking about the about the middle to lower men, the people mm-hmm. that's tippy-tippy top actually believe the stuff that they're saying, or are they just using it for uh, power, prestige, all that kind yeah. of
0: stuff? There are both. There are those who truly believe it. And then there are those who are opportunists. And we have that in the black community too. You know, people who would take advantage of somebody who will believe in them and edify them. And so, yeah, you know, there, there are, are uh, people who, who use a racist agenda because they know it, it appeals to certain people. And, um, and they will get their followers, they'll get their donations and their money and give them power. Uh, so, yes, there are people who will self-enrich and exploit their own for that. And that goes on both sides of, of, the, of the fence.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Grande. but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.
2: I want to, we talked about this a little bit before we got online here. I want to get your thoughts on the, uh, the, the protests that are going on right now. What are your thoughts about that?
0: Well, I think that uh, a page is turning in our history. I think that this is probably the greatest thing that has happened thus far. In the 21st century. Uh, it's a bittersweet thing because a lot of uh, deaths have happened in this country due to the uh, coronavirus, but also have uh, had it not been for the coronavirus, there would be a lot less people out there protesting because most of these people have jobs they have to go to. And because they had to be home on lockdown or their, or their jobs were closed down because of the virus, they had the opportunity to go out and, uh, and protest, they also had the opportunity to see what was happening uh, in our streets, see, actually see the things that they've been hearing about for decades and they didn't believe. Because you know we, we've always known these things have happened, uh, but uh, you know, well, where's the evidence? You know, how can you prove it? Well, it, because you know, it wasn't only until uh, somebody like George Halliday, who, uh, who was an ordinary citizen, but he could afford a video camera Uh, Before then, the only people who had video cameras with TV stations had these big things they carry on their shoulders, and they cost thousands of dollars. No, the average citizen couldn't afford one of those, but George Halliday did, and he filmed the Rodney King thing. And, you know, that was our first, uh, you know, not our first, but the world's first seeing what we've been talking about. And even then, a lot of them didn't believe it. They thought it was some anomaly. But now we're seeing it more and more and more because people have uh, video cameras, on their cell phones, and you know, so people, you know, at first they're thinking it's happening more. Why, why are these things happen so often? No, it's not happening more and more. It's that we're seeing it more and more because we have the videos. That's all. It's like uh, I explained to somebody like this. You know, somebody once said, you know, why, why are there so many more gay people today than there were, you know, when I was growing up? No, there have always been gay people, but they are more accepted today. That's why you 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 think they're more. You know, they're able to come out and express themselves more today than they could 30, 40 years ago. So it's the same thing with this kind of stuff. So people are seeing that and they're joining in because they have a conscience. And this is what it's taking for us to turn that page, that collective voice, because um, white people have always been involved in our protests, starting back in 1955 with uh, Rosa Parks and, uh, and the bus boycott. On through the 60s with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. But we have never before seen this many white people involved in our protests. And in the past, when it was just us and a, and a few, you know, smattering of white people, the powers that be had their ears plugged up and closed. They didn't want to hear what we had to say, they shut us down. But now they are seeing a mass of people who look just like them joining us and now they're pulling the cotton out of their ears or else putting in their, ear, their hearing aids and now they're listening. And that's why things are changing. It's that collective force. It's the same thing with uh, 2008, with uh, Barack Obama. Black people did not put Barack Obama in the White House. White people put Barack Obama in the White House. We are only 12 percent. And the 12% of black people in this country, a lot of them are not registered to vote. A lot of them are too young to, to vote, even if they, you know, they're too young to even register. But if you were to take every black person from adult, I mean, from, from infant to adult, and all of them could vote, that still would not have been enough to put Barack Obama in the White House. We're only 12%. We needed additional people, and we got it in the form of white people who, by 2008, there were enough of them who had the attitude, hey, I like that guy's policies, I am going to vote for him, despite whatever color he is. 20 years ago, Barack Obama could never have become president, even though he may have even had the same policies because the attitude was not there at that present time. Over the years, there have been many black people who could have uh, led this country and and, and run it right as a president, but they were not given the chance because the attitude was not ready of the majority by 2008, there was enough of that attitude that was ready, and that's what put him in the White House. By 2020, there, were, there was enough of that attitude to join us in our marches mm. and demand change. That collective is what changes things. That's what put Barack Obama in
2: office. That's what's making these changes today, and that's what we need to focus on. Back in 2006, the, uh, the FBI released a report stating that the, uh, the white supremacist would infiltrate or try to infiltrate. Or infiltrate police departments in the military. Have you seen any of that in your in your work? Absolutely,
0: absolutely. And uh, and I know uh, quite the, I know the kind know clan leaders who've been in the in the in the uh, police departments, not just the military, but in actual city police departments. I have the robe and hood and the police uniform from somebody uh, who was on the Baltimore City Police Force. He was the Grand Dragon of Maryland, which means state leader. Uh, I have, I have his uniform, I have his his Klan robe and everything like that. He was not an undercover cop on the Baltimore City PD. He was a bona fide, um, uh, I mean, uh, not an undercover cop in the Ku Klux Klan. He was a bona fide Klansman on the Baltimore City PD. And yes, uh, the military does have a lot of those people. Uh, Camp Lejeune uh, had a, had a whole regiment of people uh, that were that were in there. And uh, and that dates back to to even even before the um, 2006, back into the 1970s, and even before that, uh, the spy John Walker, one of one of the worst spies in this country. Uh, he was a Navy uh, a, cryptop- a cryptographer, deciphering codes, and he was also the uh, the uh, chief uh, Klan recruiter, and on, on the uh, ship the uh, USS um, was it Nimitz, you know. So it, it goes way back. And and now what they're doing is the Klan is is preying upon a lot of these returning veterans from um, Afghanistan and Iraq because they have military training and they recruit them to 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 train to train the, the people back here uh, because, you know, they're planning for the race war. Uh, and what they tell you is that uh, your, the, the color of your skin is your uniform. And so the race war that they're planning is called Rahowa, R-A-H-O-W-A, which stands for Racial Holy War. It's also called the Boogaloo. So either term, Rahowa or Boogaloo. And this is why, you know, every time you see uh, one of these people get busted and their home gets raided or their compound gets raided, what do they find? A whole cache of automatic weapons. That is for the upcoming race war. And what we're seeing is... um, What what the neo-Nazis and the Klan and the alt-right people tell me is, Daryl, I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They're calling it the browning of America or white genocide through miscegenation. They're seeing the color of their landscape changing. And see, this country was built on a two-tier society, white supremacy and slavery. And through the decades as it progressed, it progressed like this. It did not progress like this. Every time this, this one wanted to come up, this one pushes it back down. This one's not gonna come up and help it up. So it wants to keep that, that proportion there. So with people coming in from other places of darker skin color, this is happening automatically. And so, you know, when they say, come, you know, so they're stepping up their recruitment efforts and saying, come join us. You know, we're gonna take our country back. We're gonna get rid of all this illegal immigration and blah, we're gonna build that wall, keep people out. So forth and so on. Well, when they talk about illegal immigration, they are not talking about illegals here from Canada or the UK or Eastern Europe, right? right. <laughs> They're talking about you know South America, Mexico, West Africa, things like that. Um, so that, and so people, you know, they, they appeal to the fear in those people that their landscape is changing because basically there is no more white flight. You know, white fight was a big thing back in the day. You know, your neighborhood was all white and then somebody starts moving in and somebody else and somebody else. Next thing you know, you're the only person in your neighborhood who looks like you. So, you know, you you move out to another white neighborhood and now you move so often and there's so many people here. You can't find any neighborhood that's all white. So they've seen that landscape change and their back is up against the wall and they can't go anywhere. So. That's why all these groups are stepping up their recruitment and saying, hey, we're gonna take our country back. We're gonna make America great again, all right? So these people who fear, who fear what's going on out here are joining these groups to take our country back. But when it doesn't happen, then they get frustrated. And they say, you know what? If the Klan can't do it and the neo-Nazis can't do it, I'll do it myself. And that's when they go out by themselves, walk into a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, and shoot up everybody, or enter the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, shoot up everybody, the uh, Walmart in El Paso, shoot up everybody. You know, these are lone wolves. And while we have intelligence agencies and operatives who can infiltrate these, these organizations and these groups, these movements and gather intelligence and oftentimes um, squash you know, or foil some plot, you cannot infiltrate a lone wolf. It's only one person. And here's what's going to happen. And I, I'm an optimist. So I may sound pessimistic, but I am an optimist. But I'm also a realist. I, I know it's, I've know i been doing this for 35 years. I see what's going on. I know the players. Um, in 2042, which is only 22 years from right now, is right around the corner, this country will be like this. It will be 50-50. 50% white, 50% non-white. And that is freaking people out. There are plenty of white people who embrace that say, so, hey, you know, that's evolution, that's what happens. I welcome it. I don't have a problem with it. But there are others who are becoming unhinged and disconcerted with the idea because once you sat on the on the throne of power for 401 years since 1619, you don't want to get off that throne. Nobody wants to, wants to abdicate power or abdicate their throne. So they're going to do everything they can to keep that throne. And as we get closer and closer to 2042, we're going to see more and more of these lone wolves and and we have to be be vigilant because they are becoming unhinged they're the ones who say well, you know if, they, if the group can't do it i'll do it myself
2: so i want to say hello to everyone who's in the chat here uh mark Neal, chris casey chris smith mike mckenna uh zakiya elaine and uh, chris casey says an old friend who used to teach at the fbi academy told me years ago that the only thing that can cons- that is constant is change to true words so thank you for any of that uh anybody anybody else has a comment make sure you drop them any questions make sure that you drop them uh so i want to ask you about uh and, and thank you for all that that was that was i mean listen i i've heard for for a long time now that exactly what you're saying that a lot of people are freaking out and we're going to continue to see these types you, of of, you, of, of you, you remember, shooters.
0: you remember um 1999 right you're a young man, you don't remember that year. Oh, I'm not I'm not I'm not that young. <laughs> but um you remember nineteen ninety nine, everybody was freaking about freaking out about two thousand. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. 2K. I- uh, y- t- yeah, you know, <laughs> know, my my VCR won't work anymore and so forth and so on. <laughs> you know, that anxiety. That's the same anxiety that's happening with these people about twenty forty two that same anxiety that that the whole world is gonna you know in because they're going to be off their throne and the people who who they've oppressed for four uh, 400 years are going to start oppressing them they have all these you know things going and, on in their
2: mind and that that is so key and and if you just could convince them that that we are really not interested in doing it <laughs> we really aren't yeah, better things to do. we Sorry. have better things to do we are we are not interested in that and so if, you know I don't know if that really sheds a light into some people, but that is the furthest thing from our mind. <laughs> Having gone through oppression, we are not trying to right. trying to oppress anyone else. Um, anxiety and fear is so true, just from uh, Mark Neal. So I want to ask you about uh, your ideas about police reform. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts about that?
0: You know what I would like to see? And um, I, I am very pro law enforcement, but a lot needs to be done to change the way it operates. Uh, my father was one of the first black secret service agents in this country. My father wanted to be an FBI agent. And uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was a racist, a male chauvinist, a cross-dresser, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. And um, you know, he wasn't hiring any black people. He wasn't hiring any women. Um, so my father went to the secret service. Uh, Harry Anslinger was the man who ran the secret service at the time and it was all white. And Harry Anslinger hired five black men at the same time. And my father was one of those five. And my father rose through the ranks, but there was still a ceiling, you know, because they wouldn't let him go too high. And uh, there have been books written about him and all the things that he did uh, and, and, uh, and cases that he solved, et cetera. Um, he got to work with Interpol and all that kind of thing. And he was, ended up training agents and police officers who were getting promoted above him because of that ceiling. So that's when he left and joined the Foreign Service. But, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I have a, a high regard for law enforcement, but it needs to be fixed. And some of the things that I think need to happen is, let me, let me give you three things. Number one, when, um, when people uh, apply, you know, for the police academy or apply to be an officer, you know, they have to take a test. And I, you know, each department across the country or even within the state, you know, works a little differently. Um, here where I am, you know, they, they give a polygraph, an uh, a oral test, and a uh, written test. And where are you at? I'm in um, Montgomery County, Maryland, okay. right outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, some of the questions asked is, you know, have you ever used cocaine? Uh, do you have an alcohol problem? I mean, have you ever had an issue with alcohol? Uh, how do you feel about homosexuality? Why are you asking about homosexuality? Well, because that is a segment of our population. You know they need to know that you're going to treat them as as well as well as you treat anybody else. They're human beings just like anybody else. So you're not going to have to show any bias. Okay, fine. But why isn't there a question? Do you have racial any racial bias? That question is not on the test, right? So I would say that money needs to be allocated. You know when you talk about defunding uh, the police and that kind of thing. It's not to take in my in my in my thing. I don't want to see salaries be reduced or taken away, because I think you know police are underpaid to begin with. But uh, the the extra money that is built into the budget for other things beyond salary needs to be ta- some of it needs to be taken and, and applied towards hiring um, behavioral psychologists, like they have at the FBI, uh, who, who develop criminal profiles. Uh, like John Douglas, for example, who wrote the first book on criminal profiling for the FBI, um, because they've studied hundreds and thousands of cases, they know what it what it, you know the profile of a serial killer or a serial rapist. No, they're not always 100 accurate, but they can come close. They can give you a, a pretty good ballpark, uh, you know, a guesstimate or a speculation on on what this person does and how old he is and what color he is, etc. How he thinks. Um, these people are trained. Bring them in to the police. let them develop a, a test for for racial bias. And there are those tests out there. Harvard has one. Harvard University has the implicit bias test. but they can develop one specifically for a police department and, uh, and and let them administer the test and observe you know the people when they do the oral exam or whatever, the polygraph, and you know if they're showing racial bias, then don't hire them, or else put them behind a desk or something. Keep them in the building. Don't don't let them be out on the street, especially in an area where I am, excuse me, where this is a very, very diverse area. I'm only 15 minutes from Washington, D.C., you know, one of the most cosmopolitan cities in in the world. So you're going to run into all kinds of people right here in the suburbs. Um, You don't need to be insulting people whether you have a bias or you're just just ignorant and and don't know how to handle somebody uh, who, who may not have grown up in this country with our culture. So let those behavioral psychologists determine if somebody has a racial bias or not, and that will be part of the exam. And if they do, don't give them a job on the street. Number number two, I think there needs to be a mechan uh, a national registry for police officers uh, who have been dismissed or who've gotten in, into egregious uh, or gotten into a lot of trouble for some egregious act, whether it's excessive force or unjustifiable homicide or whatever. Because what happens with these people in the in the rare instance that they get fired and charged and dismissed or whatever, what do they do? They just go join another police department and carry on with the same behavior. There's no ramification. You know, they're trained to be police officers. That's all they know how to do. Sort of like the coal miner or they get into security or whatever. But they need a national registry. We don't have one. It's sort of like what we keep hearing about. a Catholic priest who has abused some some kid and he gets shifted around to another parish and it starts all over again and then he gets shifted somewhere else and there's and there's no there's no recourse until maybe 40 years later, you know, the, the person is a drug addict and and and, uh, and an alcoholic. I'm talking about the, what the abuse victim and he comes forward and talks about it and then 10 other people come forward and say, yeah, that happened to me too 40 years ago. And then the the church tries to settle with them out of court. That doesn't change that person's behavior. That person need, needs to pay for what they did and be on a registry so they cannot go from church to church to church and continue that behavior. Uh, the only register we have is the uh, you know sex re- uh, offender registry. So if somebody abused some little kid in New York and got on the uh, the national registry, he or she can't go out to uh, Los Angeles and get a job at, at some kindergarten or or some Boy Scout troop because they're on the registry. So that's how you protect these things. We need to be able to protect the citizens from rogue police officers as well. That's number two, so a national registry. Uh, I understand that, uh, that there is some legislation, uh, federal legislation, but hasn't, no, nobody has moved on it yet, but they are, they are, it's just being talked about. Um, the third thing is this. We hear a lot about uh, two categories of police. We hear about the good cops and we hear about the bad cops. Uh, There's a third category that we never hear about, and this is a minority category. When I say minority, I don't mean in terms of skin color, I'm talking about in terms of numbers. Um, We all know what a uh, a bad cop does. A good cop will not do those things, but the good cop turns a blind eye to what's going on and does not tell on his partner or one of his colleagues because of that blue wall or blue code of silence. Um... So the third category is the honest cop. And the honest cop does tell. And as a result of him telling and, and violating that, that blue code of silence, he is endangering his own safety from his fellow officers. When he goes on a call and he needs backup, you know, and, and his you know, he goes across the airwaves and they know, oh, this guy, you know, he he was a snitch. And no, I'm, I'm not gonna go help him, or or I'm gonna arrive very slowly. And he ends up getting shot or something like that. Um, you know, a lot of young people don't know the story of uh, Frank Serpico, um, but I mean, I'm sure you do. And um, but you know, that's a, that's a good movie to to watch. A true story about an NYPD officer who was an honest cop, and as a result, he almost got killed by his own people. Um, there needs, you know, so there needs to be a mechanism by which, because you know, if you're a good cop and you're seeing all this stuff go down, and and you're not exposing it. You might as well be complicit in it. Just like, just like the guy who drives a getaway car but didn't shoot the teller. Yeah. He, he's still part of that bank robbery. Yeah. Um, so there needs to be a mechanism like we have for citizens where when the police cannot solve a crime, they, they advertise, you know, you can call this num- tip, tip line. You can call this number anonymously. You don't have to leave your name. Just give us the information. What did you see? Who did you see? Et cetera. And you, you get a reward or whatever police officers also need something like that, where they can report that kind of behavior. Um, because you know what? When when the PIO, the public information officer or the chief uh, comes out and says and makes a, a comment after uh, a police officer has been accused of something uh, before he goes to trial, something like that, usually it's either no comment or he followed proper police procedure. Those are always the catchphrases. But then in the rare instances, where this particular cop is convicted, then the PIO or the chief comes out and says, Well, you know, in, in a department this large, there are bound to be a few bad apples. No, I'm sorry, in my opinion, there are more bad apples than there are good apples. Because if there were so many good apples, why don't the, and, and just a few bad apples, why don't the good apples coalesce together and get rid of those bad apples? Because you don't want one cop or two or three cops, just a few people tarnishing your badge when you are out here working your butt off to do the right thing. And, and, and one guy over here is screwing up. Like you look at the, at the one police officer who, uh, who knelt on the, uh, on the neck of uh, George Floyd. He, he's painted the entire Minneapolis Police Department.
2: He, that, that's what he
0: represents now. And that's what people view as that, as, that, as that police department and that's not fair to the good and honest officers who don't do that kind of thing in that department and there had been 18 complaints against this guy in his 19-year career on that department if somebody had listened perhaps to just one of those 18 voices that complained Perhaps he could have been reprimanded, counseled, or put behind a desk or done some other kind of job, and uh, Mr. Floyd might be alive today. But 18 complaints, nothing was done. Can you imagine a doctor working in a hospital, working for a hospital, who had 18 complaints of malpractice against him? That hospital would not be, still be, be employing that doctor. If, if I had, you don't, you don't know anybody who has 18 DWIs,
2: And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Um, right. You know, you know when,
0: when, you, when you are given a um, – uh, when you are given – you take the oath of a of police officer uh, to, to be sworn and, to, and, and, and serve and protect that oath, you know, you're essentially given a 007 license, a license to kill. And, and you have to, you know, be accountable for that you know that's your license and and certainly if if it's called for you use that license um but you also have to be accountable if you use it uh, illegally as well and um we're not we're not seeing that accountability when somebody has 18 complaints against them in a 19 year career something is wrong uh, know, one, one DWI is, is going to get you you know get your license suspended two probably get you revoked
2: uh, well, that's a that's a good point. That's a good point. I know you you got to ri- wind down here in a minute. Here, I uh, want I'm to ask. Good. Keep on going. I'm I'm good with you. Okay, uh, I want to ask you uh, what what should the police do to r- repair their reputation to reach out to the public? What should the police do? I think they should uh, be ha- have more have more community
0: organized meetings. Not after every time something happens. Have these things throughout the year. Be proactive. So people get to know the police and be able to cooperate with the police and corroborate uh, with them when 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 the police don't have the evidence that they need. Um, you know, don't don't just come to people and and have meetings and and try to build community after somebody gets killed by the police. Do it throughout the year. You know, it used to be a time a long time ago when when police knew everybody on the block. You know, they knew your name, they knew your mama's name. They knew what your dad did for a job. You know, and there was a relationship. That is the real community policing, okay? And, you know, we need to get back to that. We need to have people um, have more respect for the police, but also it has to be the other way around where the police have have respect for the people as well. And I think um, a citizen's review board is necessary. Um, I think we need an outside body other than internal affairs. Uh, Internal affairs is fine, but there needs to be an outside body also that can review that. Just like, you know, when you go to court, if, uh, if a doctor is a or a police officer is is the defendant, um, you know, during the voir dire, right, the prosecutor is going to ask the, uh, the jury, is anybody in the jury a doctor or work in the medical field or whatever? And if they are, they get excused, and you bring in another jury. Uh, so that way you have 12 people who are totally unbiased, totally unrelated to the defendant's line of work. And, uh, you know, so how do you, how do you have that unbiased thing um, with, uh, with internal affairs? I know, you know, I've, I've dealt with internal affairs before plenty of times. And I know that there are some very honest, decent uh, police officers in internal affairs who do their job, and they will bust you if you have done something wrong. But I also know ones, and we've gotten rid of some where I live, uh, who, who will not do their job. They will cover up. And, and if, if a cop on the street complains about one of their fellow cops to the brass, it has a way of leaking down to the street. It's not kept confidential. Uh, so, you know, that needs to be addressed. That's why there needs to be an, an outside mechanism, you know, where, where people can go to and and have that, you know, that check and balance.
2: Yeah, that's, that's well said. Uh, I want to put uh, Chris Casey's uh, comment up here. Mr. Davis is right about the blue wall of silence. Time to tear it down, uh, in my honest opinion. And then uh, my good friend, Retired Detective Karen Rudy is saying hello, Captain, to us. So if anyone has any questions or comments for Mr. Davis, now is the time to shoot them to me. And so I want to ask you another question. Um, we've been talking too much about this. Let's talk about things that go on in, in, in our community. I'm going to have another podcast that's totally dedicated to this. But I want to ask you and get your opinion, right? We see what's going on in Chicago. Uh, New York is not blowing up with more shootings. You know, how do we get some of these communities under control? Do you have any thoughts about that? yeah I know right <laughs> yeah I know. There, there is a lot
0: going on yeah. Um, yeah. but I you know I think again you know building community with with the police uh and and also um I know here where where we are they used to have internal affairs people in uniform and then about maybe 18 20 years ago they took them out of uniform and put them in a separate building internal affairs so they're they're in suit and tie. And I questioned that because I disagreed with it completely, and I still do. Um, the reason why they they explained that they did that is because there are so many people here in this area from foreign countries. Uh, and in their countries, you know, the police were very brutal uh, with them and beat them. So, you know, when they see a uniform, they're all freaked out. You know, they don't want to go and complain. They're, they fear retaliation, etc. So they're more relaxed when they're around somebody in a suit and tie and that kind of thing. Cause the uniform just triggers, you know, negative emotions. Okay. I get that. But what you're doing though, is you are reinforcing what they already believe that the, that the uniform is bad. So, and so, subliminally you're, you're training them and brainwashing them to think, okay, there are two sets of cops, the cops in the suit and tie are the good cops, the cops with the badge and the gun, the uniform are the bad cops. So I want to stay away from those people and only cooperate with these people. No, we want people to respect all police officers in a uniform. Okay, so, you know, you you've got and, and how do you do that? You've got to show them that not everybody in a uniform is is going to brutalize them. You know, you you know you can talk to us. You can you know we can help you. We hit are are there some bad people who do that? Yes, absolutely. But there are also some bad people in suits and ties. You know, people say to me, you know, how can you have these robes and hoods in your house and these clan things? You know, yeah, yeah, it's scary. You know, it's scary. Listen, there are people who wear a suit and tie, who wear a Hawaiian shirt and Bermuda shorts, who wear a T-shirt and a pair of jeans, or who wear a black judge's robe or a uniform with a with a badge and gun, who feel and think just like the guy in the robe and hood. So it's not what you're wearing. It's what's in your heart and what's in your mind, how you're feeling and how you're thinking. So we need to get over what somebody dresses like and understand where they're coming from. I would rather see somebody in a robe and hood than see somebody in a suit and tie (laughs) or a badge (laughs) and not know where they're coming from.
2: Yeah, I want to see who who, who exactly these people are. I absolutely agree with that. So tell us tell us a story about your toughest nut to crack. The the person you had the toughest time convincing to come out of that. that Well, see, I I never I never
0: try to convince anybody to come out. You know, the 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 media. uh, You know, they whatever you see my name, whatever it says. You know, black musician converts. You know, X number of Klansmen or convinces so many to leave the organization. No, I did not even convert one person. I have been the impetus for over two hundred to renounce their ideology and change, all right? I planted the seed. They converted themselves. And here's how you do this, okay? I I, I had a racist experience when I was a kid at the age of 10. Uh, I was the only black scout in a a, uh, Cub Scout march along with some other organizations, and everybody was happy. Everybody was cheering us, except when we got to one point, a small group mixed in with a larger crowd began throwing uh, bottles and soda pop cans and stuff at me. And um, I was 10 years old, 1968, and I did not understand it. I thought, first of all, I thought the people did not like the scouts. That's how naive <laughs> I was. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, later my parents explained to me uh, what racism was, and I didn't understand it. My 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone who had never seen me, who had never spoken to me, who knew nothing about me, would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It just didn't make any sense. And so I formed a question at that age, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 52 years, I've been looking for the answer to that question. So who better to ask than someone who would go so far as to join an organization that has over a hundred year history of, of practicing hating people who don't look like them who or who don't believe as they believe? So that's why I would go to clan people or neo-Nazis and people like that. Um, so in, in, in interviewing these people, you know, I might ask that question. And some of the answers I get, you know, I'm, I'm sitting two and a half feet away from somebody right there, you know, somebody who hates me, you know, in a robin hood or what have you. And they're telling me, well, Mr. Davis, you know, uh, you Black people, uh, you know, you're prone to crime, you're all are criminals. Well, why do you say that? Well, Mr. Davis, all you have to do is look at the prison system. There, there are more Black people in prison than there are white people. So I'm I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, this is a half truth. Uh, He has a point there, but there are more black people in prison than white people, but he is not considering the inequity in the the, uh, judicial system. He's not considering the fact that there are plenty of black people and white people who are poor, who are in prison, who may not even belong there, but they are there because they could not afford adequate legal representation. So there they sit. And then he goes on to say, Uh, you know, black people are inherently lazy. Uh, We don't want to work. We prefer to scam the government welfare system and take advantage of all the government handouts. Uh, And also, black people are born with a smaller brain than white people. And the larger the brain, the more room for intelligence, IQ, the higher their IQ. And so I'm asking, well, where do you get this information? Well, Mr. Davis, all you have to do is look at the uh, SAT scores. Uh, Black kids in school consistently score lower than, than white kids okay that's true too but we're not giving the equal opportunities for education you know the the, be, the best teachers the best facilities the best textbooks the best latest and greatest computers and things that you know that these suburban schools have um, I don't say that yet okay I'm just listening to him now is what he is saying offensive yes it is absolutely offensive am I offended by it? Absolutely not. Why would I why would I be offended by a lie? The man is speaking an untruth. So why should I let that offend me? Don't let my emotions get in the way or my ego get in the way. Because when this guy comes into the room, he's a Klansman. He's a Klan leader. And he sees me. His wall goes up because I'm the enemy. All right? So he's going to be pushing back against me. I'm the criminal. I'm lazy. My brain is small. I have no you know, intelligence, etc. I'm inferior. That wall is up. And normally when somebody does that, the, the, the other person like me will push back. No, you're the criminal. You're the one burning crosses in people's yards. You're the one bombing somebody's church, killing four little black girls. And you're the one hanging people from trees. I'm not the criminal. You know, That's what they're used to. They're used to that. They've been hearing that all their lives. Every time kind of, they say something like this. So I don't say any of that. I just let them talk. Because like I told you, one of those four things that everybody wants is to be heard. So I'm going to let him be heard. Why should I fear what he's saying? He, he obviously is not talking about me because he doesn't know me. He only met me five, ten minutes ago. So he's going to make all these assertions about me just because he sees this, the color of my skin. I know who I am. Now, if my parents told me I was lazy and I was a criminal, maybe I might put a little more uh, heed to that because my parents brought me into this world and they raised me and they know me, but somebody who doesn't know me, why would I be offended by a lie? Don't let your emotions get in the way. So because I, I allowed him to say what he had to say, his, I threw him off his game and his wall comes down. All right. So when the wall comes down, then you have an opportunity to plant a seed on the other side of the wall. Because if you try to plant the seed while the wall is up, he's just going to bounce off the wall and fall back on your side right? so you let that wall come down and then when the wall is down he feels compelled to let you speak because it's very rare that he can get out everything that he wants to say especially to an enemy because usually the enemy pushes back so i didn't push back so he was able to say all he wanted to say so his wall is down now it's my turn rather than attack him and tell him how wrong i am i mean, I mean how wrong he is rather than go on the offense, I simply defend myself. All right, so that way I keep the wall, if I attack him and tell him he's wrong, his wall starts going back up. So I leave the wall down and I defend myself. I said, well, look, you know, I don't have a criminal record. Nobody in my family has a criminal record. I have never been on welfare. Nobody in my family's on welfare. Uh, In terms of SAT scores, uh, I have a bachelor's degree. So my SAT scores were good enough for me to graduate from Howard University. Uh, My mother and father both had master's degrees. My father was working on a PhD before he passed. You know, and and now I'm, I'm knowing that I have more education in my little fingernail than he does and his whole clan put together. But I'm not gonna say that and offend him because I don't want the wall to go back up. I'm just defending myself. And that way I'm dropping that seed over on his side of the wall. And then here's what happens. And I, and I promise you, this is exactly what happens because they've told me, you know, years later when they've left and given me their robe and hood, all right? Um, they go home and they reflect, just like you'll go home tonight and you will reflect upon our conversation before you go to bed. You know, you reflect on, on whatever you did during the day. They go home and they reflect also. And they think, you know, gee, you know, I sat down and had a three hour conversation with a black man and we didn't come to blows. You know, so that in and of itself is a miracle for them. And um, I think, you know, what he said about such and such makes sense, but he's black. But it was true, but he's black, okay? So they're having a cognitive dissonance thing going on. They know it's true, but they don't wanna believe it's true because the source was black, you know? So that, that's a dilemma for them. So they, they, they struggle with this for a while. And every time I get together with them, I water that seed. I keep that wall down. I I, I let them be heard, you know? So I'm watering that seed. And then they come to the point where they have to solve their dilemma. Do I disregard the fact that he's black and believe the truth because I know it's true and change my direction? Or do I consider that he's black and just keep living a lie? And when they decide to, to to, to accept the truth even though it came from a black person, that's when I get the Robin Hood.
2: That's a good uh, way to uh, approach. Do you teach classes or give seminars about, about, about this?
0: I do from time to time, absolutely. And just like, you know, I mean, as a police officer, you know, you pull somebody over and they want to argue and this and the other. You you got to set emotion aside. You know, they want to talk about you and talk about your mother and so forth and so on. You know, you start reacting as pushback. Yeah, you know, they they don't get the ticket and they might even get locked up. But, you know, they, yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> But things go a lot smoother. You know, know, we we can control them, you know, by how we react. You know, you may not be able to change um, their reaction, but you can change your reaction to them and and manipulate them that way.
2: You got a hundred racist Klansmen in a room. Mm -hmm. How many of them are struggling with the ideologies that they're being taught? I mean, certainly along their path they've come across black people who they've had decent conversations with or Hispanic people or whatever. Uh, how many of them are struggling with, with, with what's being told? It depends upon the area, uh, that the demographics of, of the
0: area in which they live, because some of them even went to school with black kids, things like that. You know, They might have been buddies, might have played on the football team you know, or been in class together. Or if it's some you know, rural area where that's all they know, then you know, it may be a little tougher. So yeah you you do have those who 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 think you know am I really doing the right thing and there's a little voice that's telling them you know you shouldn't be here and you shouldn't be doing this but they want to belong to something they feel they need to belong now I'll give you an example of something and this happens I I give anywhere from 60 to 80 lectures a year uh, in person not not during lockdown um, <laughs> you know we, I think I think we're going to have a um a uh, a new, like you know, how, how you have AD and BC in terms of the Bible. I think we're going to have something like, um,
2: yeah, a, LD, I, uh, LD, yeah, yeah, <laughs> post lockdown, <yeah>. pre lockdown. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but, uh, but, uh, you know, um, I can tell you this two to three, and I lecture at, at universities, colleges, corporations, synagogues, churches, sometimes police departments. Uh, high schools, mostly colleges and universities, and two to three out of every 10 lectures I give, I'll tell you what happens. You know, I'll do a, a lecture and I'll do a Q&A and um, I'll take off some of the robes and hoods and stuff. And then when I finish, still there'll be a bunch of students who still want to ask some more questions. They'll come up to the podium. As I'm packing up, they want to touch the robes, whatever. There'll be one student off in the distance and I've come to learn what he or she's going to do. The, that, that person is waiting for the crowd to go away. And the crowd dissipates and I'm standing there by myself and I'm packing up my stuff. He or she comes over. And they're like, you know, look around. And then they'll say, yeah, I, I enjoyed your lecture, Mr. Davis. And then I look around some more, make sure nobody's within earshot. And then they say, you know, my mother's in the Klan. Or my father's a neo-Nazi. And and that's how I was raised. And and now I'm, I, I'm here at uh, University of whatever. And... I'm dating this guy from Pakistan, or my girlfriend's black, or my boyfriend's Jewish, you know, and I, I can't bring them home. My parents will kill me. My parents will disown me. And I don't want to tell my friend because, you know, they'll drop me. So they have this big secret that's sitting on their chest and is, is making an ulcer. It's burning a hole in their chest because it has to come out. And I'm the perfect person for them to talk to, you know? And I see this all the time. And here's what happens. You know, they live in some neighborhood that is homogenous. You know, they go to high school with these people. Uh, They all read the same books. They have the same teachers. They swim in the same community swimming pool, shop at the same grocery store. They cheer the same sports team. They probably vote for the same candidate. You know, so they're all on the same page. And then when they come, you know, the parents send them to, you know, go get an education. They come away to college. And guess what? the neighborhood doesn't come with them to college. <laughs> <laughs> the neighbor, you know, in college, you've got people from all over the country there and in some cases all over the world coming to that university or college. And you, and you come to the realization Jewish people don't have horns and black people don't have tails and, you know, they're just as normal as anybody else. And, and you, you know, you realize what you learned from your parents or you learned in your neighborhood was wrong. Now, you know now you got to tell your parents you know they were wrong and you know your parents wanted you to go get an education but they didn't want you to get that education <laughs> <laughs> <Not>
2: that. <laughs> on the morning of august 1st 1966 shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the university of texas campus it marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in america
1: And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all
3: hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.
2: Uh, That's a good right, thing.
0: Right, right. That's a good thing. So I see this. Education is the key. Listen, you, you want to solve racism, I'm, I'm going to tell you how to solve it. All right. In most cases, when you have a problem, it's trickle down that either causes the problem or can solve the problem. Uh, If you deal with a department or corporation, say a a police department, for example, if the top, the brass, the management is tight, the people down on the street are going to be tight. If it's loose up there, it's going to reflect down here. Same thing with a store, a company, whatever. All right. People lead lead by example. So it's trickle down. Um, but now, if you want to solve racism with, with the general public, it's, you, it has to be trickled up. You have to do it up. Because so here's what happens: ignorance breeds fear. We fear the things that we don't know. But that those are those things of which we are ignorant. If we do not keep that fear in check, that fear will escalate and breed hatred, hatred and anger. And if we do not keep that hatred and because we 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 hate the things that scare us and and they they cause us to be angry. And so if we don't keep that in check, that escalates and creates and breeds destruction. So now we're angry, we want to destroy the things that we hate. Why? Because they frighten us. But guess what? They may have been harmless and we were simply ignorant. So a good example of that would be three years ago, next month, August 12th, 2017, in the city of uh, Charlottesville, Virginia there was a major uh, white supremacist rally, which is just two hours from where I'm sitting right now. Um, On that day, there was a lot of ignorance in Charlottesville. There was a lot of fear in Charlottesville. There was a lot of hatred and anger in Charlottesville. And what did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction when a white supremacist got inside his vehicle and tried to murder as many counter-protesters, black and white, as he could by driving his car full force into the crowd. He succeeded in, in uh, injuring 20 people and murdering one young lady named Heather Heyer. Ignorance breeds fear, breeds hatred and anger, which breeds destruction. So if you wanna solve this problem, don't start at the top. Don't, don't do the corporate department thing, all right? That, that works in corporates and departments, but not on this, on this type of thing. Forget about the destruction at the top. Once something is destroyed, it's not coming back. George Floyd is not coming back, all right? The next level down is the hatred and the anger. Forget about that. Those are just symptoms. Forget them. Next level down is fear. That's another symptom. Forget about it. Go down to the source, the root. That is ignorance, all right? If you want to, if you have cancer in your bone, you just can't rub a topical cream on top. Or put a band-aid up here you got to drill down to the bone and hit it with the radiation or the chemo or steroids or whatever you whatever the the regimen for treatment of that cancer is same thing you gotta drill down to the ignorance the source if you cure the ignorance if you cure the ignorance then there's nothing to fear because you fear what you don't know if you're no longer ignorant then you mean you do know so if you cure the ignorance there's nothing to fear if there's nothing to fear there's nothing to, to hate and be angry about if there's nothing to hate and be angry about, then there's nothing to destroy. And the good thing is that there is a cure for ignorance. That cure is called education and exposure. That's where we need to put our focus and our money into education and exposure. Teach people, let them learn. All right. Because that that way you mitigate that fear and all these other symptoms. And I and, and this goes for adults and kids. I'll give you, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, even little kids. Sometimes I lecture at middle schools and things like that. Of course, I tamp it down a little bit for them. But um, I'll be talking to some kids sitting you know, at their little desks in rows and stuff, just talking to them casually, whatever. And then all of a sudden I'll say, hey, hey, hey there's a snake under your chair. And I'll point to some kid in the, in the front row and, and point down by the floor between their legs and say, there's a snake there. Just at my suggestion of there being a snake under this kid's chair in the front row, everybody in the class, even six, eight rows back, scream and throw their legs up in the air because I suggested there was a snake under the first person's chair. And so then they realize that there's no snake there and we all start laughing. And so then I ask them, why why, why did you all scream and throw your legs up in the air? Oh, you, you hear all these things. Oh, I hate snakes, I'm afraid of snakes. I hate them, you know, they scare me. Well, there's your, there's your hatred, there's your fear, right? So I say, why do you hate snakes? Why are you afraid of snakes? Oh, well, they're, they're, they're slimy. And they're poisonous. Well, now there's your ignorance. If you ever touched a snake, a snake is not slimy at all. It's dry. And not all snakes are poisonous. So there's your ignorance. Ignorance breeds the fear, breeds the hatred, right? So then I ask, I say, okay, we know, I was just joking. We know there's no snake under your chair. I'm just making a joke. However, let's just say there really was a snake under your chair. What would you want me to do about it? You know what they say? Kill it there's your destruction. And this is coming from a kid. So that's universal. So we need to address the root cause, ignorance.
2: Very good. Chris Casey is saying, great philosophy. Uh, don't let emotions rule. Uh, Mark Neal is saying, uh, often when we let a person speak, they finally hear their perspective. It uh, doesn't make sense, right? Uh, by interrupting, we never let them hear their own words, right? Exactly. Uh, Mike. And Mike McKenna is uh, asking a question: Do you give spe- uh, where are your speeches public, and uh, how can we for find more find out more about them?
0: Sure, I, I thank you very much for your questions uh, and your comments. You can find me at uh, Darrell D A R O Y L only one R Davis.com. and my schedule is there: my music schedule. I'm a professional musician as well as my lecture schedule. It needs to be updated because we're in <laughs> lockdown now. Okay. We're an LD. Yeah, LD, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and but uh, you know my schedule is there for for music and for lecturing, and also go on YouTube, uh, look me up there. You'll see tons of lectures I've done, like four uh, TEDx talks, and uh, you can learn a lot, a lot there as uh, as well. And uh, I travel the country and the world speaking. So hopefully at some point I'll come to a place near you and get to meet you in in person. I'd love that.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for coming on. I don't see any more questions or comments. Uh, I want to let you run. I really, really appreciate you being on Captain Hunter's podcast. Anytime. I really, really, really really, appreciate it. And uh, we're certainly going to look forward to having you back on again. I hope, wish you the best uh, of success and, and, and luck going in the future. Uh, I do want to ask one, one question, sure. right? There's all these different racial groups, right? The KKK, the, the, the neo-Nazis and all these different ones. Do you differentiate between them? Do you see a difference? I know they fight amongst each other. Do you see one harder than the other? What, what, do you see any of that? It, it
0: all falls under the umbrella of, uh, of white supremacy.
2: Right.
0: And and they keep rebranding themselves. Yes, they all fight amongst each other. You know why? Because when you hate somebody else, you hate yourself. And so even though they have the same ideology, uh, they, they are rivals with one another. Um, and, and And it doesn't even make sense uh, you know, but, but, but that's what hate does, and and to, to be a racist doesn't make sense. So you know that that's what you have going on. Um, so in in the beginning, uh, it was called white supremacy. I, I'm a white supremacist. Uh, you know, the KKK. Whether you that, that was the first group, the premier group. Um, I'm a, you know I'm a white supremacist, and then a lot of violence, uh, a lot of murders, lynchings, all kinds of stuff. You know, going on. Um, so. It, it it had a lot of baggage with it. And people began dropping out. There were people who did not like Black people or did not like Jewish people, but they didn't want to go and participate in uh, bombings of churches and hanging people and this kind of thing, you know, e- either for moral reasons or they didn't want to go to jail or whatever. So they began dropping out. And so the group began to lose membership. right? So then they had to rebrand because the term white supremacist or white supremacy was no longer palatable. It, it didn't draw people in; uh, it pushed them away. So they changed it to white separatism. I'm a white separatist. I don't hate black people. I don't hate Jewish people. I just love my own kind. Black people can have their own schools, their own neighborhoods, their own restaurants, and that kind of thing. And uh, you know, and I should be able to have my own. We don't have to mix. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, I, I I I can go with that. Sign me up. I'm a white separatist now. All right, so the membership began to increase again, right? But the more people you have in there, then somebody slips up and starts all these kinds of violence and stuff, and then membership goes back down. So now white, white supremacy and white separatism are no longer palatable. So then you gotta change the name again. Um, so you, you, get, you get a new name. Uh, I'm a white nationalist. Now I love my country, I'm patriotic. I'm a white nationalist. Well, we all are nationalists for that matter. I mean, we live here. We love our country. So why do you have to say I'm a white nationalist? You know why? Why can't you just say I'm a nationalist and, and you would be just like me? You know, or whatever. Uh, but you know, when you differentiate, you're a white nationalist. That's saying something else. Or I'm a black nationalist. That's saying something else. So right. people say, yeah, yeah, I'm patriotic. I love my country, and I'm white. So I'm a white nationalist. Sign me up. Membership increased again, and then here comes the violence. Goes back down. So then they rebrand again. Uh, We're going to call ourselves the alt-right. You know, we have the right wing and the left wing, but we're the alt-right wing. Um, Listen, the old cliche, the old saying, a rose by any other name is still a rose. So you can call it white nationalism. You can call it white supremacy, white separatism, uh, uh, alt-right, whatever. It uh, it all comes down to white supremacy. That's the umbrella. You know, whether you are playing bebop, whether you're playing big band swing, Whether you're playing the blues, whether you're playing Dixieland, guess what? It's all under the umbrella of jazz. And I know that for a fact because I'm a jazz musician. But I also play rock and roll. (laughs) Uh,
2: Let's see, one more comment here. Quite insightful. Chris Casey says, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Steve Castos, I love your story. Did you ever feel that you were ever in a serious danger when talking with these men? Uh, There must have been fear and unbelievable tension.
0: Well, I mean, I've had my share of fights. I've had to, you know, hurt people, put them in the hospital, put them in jail. Fortunately, those those have been few and far between occasions. Uh, but you know, when you're dealing with people like that, those are some of the consequences that you have to deal with. Because there are some people who just do not like you as soon as they see you, because you're you're black, you're Jewish, you're gay, you're Muslim, you're whatever it is they don't like, and they are on you. There's no talking to them. You know, and and not everybody I talk to is is gonna change. You know, a lot of them have, and, and there'll be a lot more who will, but you know, I'm not so naive as to think that everybody is. There will be those on all sides who will go to their grave being hateful, racist, and violent, but we don't give up on them. If somebody, even of that attitude, uh, is willing to sit down and have a conversation, then there is that opportunity, depending upon how you utilize that conversation, to plant a seed. And remember something: when two enemies are talking, they're not fighting; they're talking. So it's when the it's when the conversation ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So you want to keep the conversation going.
2: That's a good point. Uh, Karen is asking. Uh, I apologize if this has been asked already, but do you speak to black militants as well as white supremacy groups?
0: Okay, Karen. You know it's interesting you use that word, uh, and I'm glad you did because I want to point things. When you have a a group of white people who go out who are paramilitary and they dress in their camouflage. What is that? White
2: people
3: is a racial classification
0: That's a, um...
2: Well, it's good that uh, Alexa's listening there, huh? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, When you have a group of uh, of white people who who dress in camouflage and go out in the woods and practice uh survival tactics and, and shoot guns and all this stuff and they're anti-government, they're called militias. But when you have a group of black people who do the exact same thing, they're called militants. And one word has a, has more of a negative aggression connotation to it than the other. Militant has a more hard edge than militia. Um and so yes, I do speak, I do speak to both groups. Uh, you know, when you when you're dealing with uh, with uh, any kind of supremacy, you're going to find other ones on the fringe. I know a lot of black supremacists. I've spoken with them. Uh, I met a lot of them. Uh, black separatists as well. Uh, and I and I'll tell you something, Karen. Uh, black supremacists and white supremacists, believe it or not, they get along. They get along fine with each other. All right, because they both believe in the same thing: purity of the races, no miscegenation. So. That's what, the white, that's what the white supremacists want. That's what the black supremacists want. So they agree fundamentally on those principles and they get along fine with each other on that regard. It's the ones who, who miscegenate or race mix or date each other that, that, they, have a, that they have trouble with. And I, and I can tell you something, a, a white supremacist hates a white person more than a black person if that white person is involved with a black person. And the same thing with a black supremacist. A black supremacist who sees a black person involved with with a with a member of the, of the white race hates that black person more because that, that black person is a race trader, a sellout. You know, you, you're supposed to be one of us and you have sold us out. That's the attitude on both sides.
2: Wow. Well, are you good? I'm going to let you go, man. We've been on for a little bit, man.
0: It's- My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, man. Any, anytime you want to do a part two, let me know.
2: Oh, absolutely. We'll do a part three, four, five, all, all, in, the, all, all in the LD there. LD 2021. <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We've been listening to Daryl Davis. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we're going to do this again. Thank you, Mike and Karen and Steve. And I think Todd chimed in here with uh, Talon Hollabuck chimed in with a comment here. Rich. And, uh, Mark Neal, Chris Casey, Elaine, Sakia, and everyone else who... Oh, geez, what did I do here? Everyone else here who chimed in, thank you so much, and we'll see you guys again next week. Uh, actually, next Monday I'm going to have firefighter who's done triathletes and all this kind of stuff. He's going to talk to us about his uh, coming through a plant, his coming to and going through a plant-based diet. I've been down 15 pounds since I did it, so. Uh, I want to tune into that one. I want to. What, what day is that? That's Monday. Next Monday, uh, seven thirty, same time. Next Monday. Yep. Okay. Fire, firefighter. Uh, plant whole food, plant based diet. Uh, I actually have a nutritionist. Uh, who's going to be on? And um, she, I actually recorded that episode, so I'm going to release that on Sunday. Put that up on YouTube. Put it on my audio podcast. And we we kind of had a nice long conversation about the benefits of plant. A whole food plant-based diet she hooked me up with a firefighter uh who and we're gonna and he's gonna tell me about his journey's been uh uh plant-based for five years eating nothing but but vegetables and, and plants and oats and rice and all this kind of stuff and he's changed his diet and all that kind of stuff so do you do you
0: it. uh do you i mean i know you slimmed down all that kind of stuff on those diets
2: but do you lose any strength when you don't have any um, i haven't lost any listen i i was running before and here's I, i'll give a quick quick uh vignette into this i started um uh, you know, I had a triple bypass a couple of years ago. I that did too, man. And, <laughs> yeah, you, you remember the zipper play? Hey, I want to compare scars here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I can get mine out here, I gotta get rid of this thing here anyway. So, I had a one the guys can see it. here's the top of my scar, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so, I so I had so, uh, so I went through all that, and uh, you know, this is two years ago, so I started to feel better, and uh, but. As time goes on, you know, you start gaining weight back. You start eating the the same way, and I was sluggish. And I said to myself, "Why I I, I'm not I'm not right." You know, I feel myself not being right. So I said to myself, "Let me try what I've been hearing about whole food plant based diet." Did some research, and I'm I'm running again now. I'm not I I get tired obviously, but I'm not stopping. I'm running. Uh, Same amount of push ups. I got a pull up bar, so I'm feeling good and everything is good. Um, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later. But my my numbers are down as far as my cholesterol. Uh, I stopped my my medications um, as far as my cholesterol medications. Um, in good all diabetes. my numbers, I didn't have diabetes, no, I, but I was borderline diabetic, borderline diabetic, no longer that. So, everything is good, right? So, I, I just gave up the meat, uh, eating plenty, plenty of fruits and vegetables, oats, uh, rice, and just cut out the butter and mayonnaise and stuff, and just eating all that. And, and it's made a, a big, big difference. Um, so I, we'll talk about all that a little in a little bit. Uh, Sibona has a question for you, You've gotta hurry up, sibona I told this man I'm gonna let him go. This is the, we're back in church now. This is the third, <laughs> the third, uh, closing here. Uh so I'll give you a second. But yeah, so that's been my 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 journey here is uh and so uh so we'll talk about it with this firefighter that's going on.
0: Yeah I'd love to hear that man I I, yeah. I need it desperately seriously.
2: Yeah yeah well well definitely tune in and uh like I said I'm gonna have an episode up on YouTube uh with a dietitian and uh gonna put it up and and uh we'll we'll talk to this guy live and see how his diet has been and it's really not that hard it really isn't that hard you you um uh you feel I full? I, mean, I feel full. Oh yeah, listen, I eat plenty of rice, potatoes. You don't have to starve yourself. People think no, that you just eat salads all the time. No, That's you say rice. True. You're talking about, about brown rice, right? Or I eat brown rice? Yep, brown rice, brown rice, beans, uh uh quinoa, uh plenty of potatoes, uh I make potato it soup all really? the time. Oh yeah, a, yeah, high in carbohydrates. Well, see, that's the thing is is that it's good carbohydrates. So it's filling you up. Good carbohydrates and plenty of fiber, so you get full faster. So you don't have to eat all all this kind of stuff. Uh, so Cipone is asking, uh, how was he in the clan And he's black. He, uh, <laughs> okay, all okay right. we're, not gonna, we're not good. We're not good. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to that later. So so thank you once again. We're going to end this off, and I really really appreciate it. And we'll we'll do this again. I'll, I'll reach out to you again. Thank you so much. All right, thank you.
0: Take care, okay. guys. Take You're care right. of yourself.
2: I'm going to stay on for a little bit if you guys want that question. He was not in the Klan, so he, he was just uh, going to Klan meetings and things like that. Uh, so he was uh, a musician, went to Klan meetings. Um, and how we started off with is uh, he was uh, in the in the at a bar one night and uh, I guess he started talking to some uh, clan members, started conversing with them and he told the story about how patient he was and how he was listening to everything that was going on and uh, he was patient, they were patient, Everybody's talking to each other got to know each other, eventually through time they they hooked up on a number of different occasions went to each other's houses a couple of times, uh, sat sat by the bar just having a nice beer together and he was able to convince that particular clan member and other people uh, to come out of that lifestyle and since then he's built the brand in, in almost like a type of ministry, uh, I, I don't know if he would call it a ministry, but he would build some type of network or or business out of uh, you know getting people to come out to Klan or different organizations, racist organizations. So that's his story. Um, so once again, you can go onto his website, darrelldavis read about his story. He's got plenty of TED talks, uh, plenty of YouTube videos. I, I'm going to upload this to YouTube as well, uh, and so 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 like that. So. <laughs> so that's the story i explained it to you he was not in the clan seminar i, I know that's your husband asking the questions so that's uh <laughs> so uh so that's the uh so that's the answer to that particular uh question so uh how was he even able to attend their meetings he was he was invited right so uh, yeah so that's i mean you got to go we, we started off with all that in, in the beginning but he was invited to the meetings right he started off in a bar uh where he was playing music at and so through the process of time and being patient and speaking with them they eventually invited him to meetings. It's my understanding that not all Klan meetings are closed and not all racist meetings are closed because uh, they 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 are not secret about what they're doing. Not all of them. Some of them obviously are. Uh, but uh, some some of them you can go to and listen to and speak up and have a conversation. So they're not as closed-minded as as as, as uh, sometimes people portray. So that's not totally accurate. Um, so, yeah, so I'm looking forward to the next episode. And... Uh so, yeah, so uh, we'll be looking for, forward to that. And, uh, yeah, so Chris Casey said he, he didn't know that uh, about my my episode. Yeah, so that's one of the reasons why I ended up uh, retiring from the PD. If you guys can see my scar here. Let's pull it down. So I had a triple bypass. Three three clogged arteries in my heart almost two years ago. Uh, I call my second birthday um, uh, July 27th. That's actually my brother's birthday. So on my, on my brother's birthday, uh, I was uh, – i was uh under the knife and having my chest cut open uh, and that's how i celebrated my brother's birthday so that, so yeah that's that's just a little bit about my particular story so that caused me to go on this whole food plant-based diet uh, you know a year later or two years later actually i just started in april and i did it because uh i was not feeling right and the doctors are telling you can go back to eating the eggs and all this uh eggs and fish and all this kind of stuff and. And I just wasn't feeling right. I knew my body. I knew what I could do as far as working out. I didn't feel well. I didn't feel like I was back to 100 percent. And so shortly after that, I would say about a month later back. I started back in April in May. uh, I I went out for a run. I said, I'm going to try to do it and push through it. And it was was no problem. I can still do push ups, pull ups, uh, still do these different videos and all that kind of stuff. So so I definitely feel good. And like I said, we'll talk to a fireman who's going to talk about that as well. Uh, Mike McKenna says he has been to meetings and even cross burnings though. Yeah, so so they they, they, they allow people to go. It's it's not as secretive as people I mean, it's new kinder jettner clan, maybe, maybe we can put it that way, where they're trying to be more inclusive as to what they're doing. You know, I, I don't know. I I, I have uh <laughs> I have no intentions of attending a cross burning. Um, but but it's good that people are out there trying to convince other people to come out of that particular lifestyle. I think that type of work is obviously important. Um uh, so yeah so any more questions or comments i want to thank them for 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 staying for a little bit he was only supposed to be up here for 45 minutes we kept him for almost an hour and a half so i really really appreciate uh daryl davis for staying a little bit longer really really appreciate that um i actually am trying to keep these to an hour but i think the conversations are so good they've been going for an hour and 15 an hour and 20 minutes and stuff so all right ladies and gents no more questions or comments i really really appreciate you guys tuning in and we'll see you guys on. Uh, Monday 7:30 uh Firefighter and uh, we got some good episodes coming up been securing some good stuff uh anyone who tuned in for uh that episode we did on Monday I just contacted the nurses and they're going to come on and uh from that uh, show uh conscious sedation she just texted me just now said they're good for a couple Mondays from now so we're going to have them back and we're going to talk about you know what they've been dealing with with COVID and their their podcast and all that kind of stuff so some good conversations we're gonna be coming up with. Yeah, yes. Some of their meetings, uh Karen, are open, some of them are, not not all of them, <laughs> some of them are. Yeah, it's a kind and gentler, uh uh KKK. Yeah, kind and gentler. They gotta keep up with the times too. They gotta be PC, they can't be discriminating, right? <laughs> so uh yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's all weird stuff to me. It's all weird stuff, but it's good that they do allow us to go. I actually watched it. There was a clan meeting one time. Or not a clan meeting, but a racist type of meeting, um, and they were. It was on YouTube, and they actually let people. Uh, you actually could see black people sitting in the back of the audience. It was, it was pretty interesting. Yeah. So, all right, I'm really gonna go now, uh, and uh, I'll see you guys. I got to go eat. You guys, take care. See you guys Monday. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Steve. See you guys, uh, and I'll talk to you. Take care. Much love and peace.
3: Okay, well, that's it, folks. We hope that you enjoyed that. Uh, Be sure to subscribe to Captain Hunter's podcast. And in the meantime, Beth, where can the people find Beth and Wendy do a
1: podcast? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, where can the people find us? (laughs) <laughs> well, our website is FruitLoopsPod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at FruitLoopsPod, Pod and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment, Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. This is a
3: weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.